Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Read? What's happening? Am I dead? I bet you like zombie books. I like food. Do you have food? You don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com. It's full of nutrient-rich science fiction. Ugh, I'm stuck in an ad, aren't I? Once I stop talking, reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again. This isn't the first time we've had this discussion, and it won't be the last. Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? I wasn't a big coffee drinker for a long time. Although I suppose most people don't drink a lot of coffee when they're kids. I know we didn't. We were always more of a, a soda pop family, right? Uh, you know, dad would get the expensive soda, the Coca-Cola, right? And then we would get the, 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 the Fago soda, which is kind of a local Midwestern brand. And it's like three, you know, three liters for a dollar, something like that. And that was kind of our drink. It was just caffeinated sugar water, right? Oh boy, <laughs> what fun. My mamma drank coffee when I was a boy. Uh, she had this house on the side of a hill in Kentucky. And she'd wake up every morning and sort of look out over the mountains and drink a cup of coffee. And... But it didn't really pass on to my father. I didn't really pick up coffee drinking until I was in the service, like a lot of people, I think. Because when I left for the army, I had, you know, going from having no money to a steady paycheck is tremendous. And I'm like, oh, I could buy anything I want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I mean, I wanted like rock star energy drinks and you know, things of that nature. You know, I wasn't buying a Lexus. I was just buying more expensive sugar water. And and that was kind of how I lived my life. You know, I'd, I'd buy a Monster, buy a Mountain Dew, Mountain Dew Code Red, Mountain Dew, the, what was the, there was the one that Mountain Dew made that was like four times stronger than regular Mountain Dew, right? I was just, you know, I'd put it right in my veins if I could. And I remember sitting in my barracks room, right? We weren't supposed to smoke in the barracks room, but we all smoked in the barracks room. This was 2007. That was a different time. And I remember sitting there smoking a cigarette drinking a Coke over ice, watching um, Mall Rats by Kevin Smith, and just kind of enjoying being on my own for the first time. And, and then when I left for Iraq, I was trying to lose weight. And that's how I started drinking coffee. Um, you know, I wasn't really the cream and sugar sort of guy not typically um because you know they said oh coffee 
uh, has just as much caffeine, if not more, if you make it right, and uh, no calories. And I'm like, oh, so I got height and weight coming up here. So, and I would go to this place called Green Beans that was on the base. Green Beans was this uh, coffee shop, right? And it's sort of like a Starbucks, but on every military installation on the planet, every U.S. military installation anyway, kind of like a Burger King. If you're on an army base on the planet Earth, there's almost always uh, a Burger King and a Green Beans if you're outside the continental United States. And they had this thing called the Moac, which was the mother of all coffees. And we would go there and we'd get one. And then I'd add, add four extra shots of espresso into it. And this was in the 130 degree heat of Iraq. And I'm not saying it was a smart move. <laughs> because I would drink too much coffee and not enough water in the heat. And I to, oh, man. One day I was starting to crash and I had a coach. My roommate had to give me an IV one time. Because I'm an idiot. And as my time in the army continued, coffee had this other sort of symbolism about it. Right. It was almost a communal experience. You know, the the meme, if you will, of the NCO walking around with a three liter mug of coffee. Right. It was kind of part of the, 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 the accoutrement, the... It was part of the identity, right, of leadership, almost, you know, it was part of your identity as a soldier, but especially as a non-commissioned officer, where you just drink coffee, right? Everyone drank coffee, and the coffee pot was a communal place, and some people would just wake up, have a marble light, and a cup of black coffee, and go to work, and that was breakfast, and so I kind of glommed onto that. You know, because like when you're part of a, a, a culture, an organization, a tribe, and then as you get older, you move up the tribe and, and the culture and the organization. And you're like, oh, I want to adopt these symbols, these signs of experience and leadership and success, right? One of the many signs of experience, leadership, success uh, was just a coffee cup. Right. Like, oh, that's an NCO. Oh, he's got a coffee mug. Of course he does. You know, and so when I became an E5, I was all about coffee. Right. And two, also horribly addicted. Right. And uh, trying to kick cigarettes, but that'll be a different video. But yeah, I was always in search of a coffee pot. Right. Which being a medic uh, in the battalion aid station came in handy because the battalion aid station was typically set up next to the main tent. In the main tent, uh, the the commander always had a cup of co uh, coffee pot going. And so I could usually sneak in there and grab a cup of coffee. And I was one of the medics. So people would think, oh, he might save my life one day. Maybe. <laughs> so <laughs> Lester can have some coffee. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I, didn't mind. I had no shame in my game back then. And now kind of like my mamma. Like everyone else in the military, like it just kind of becomes a part of the morning ritual. You know, it's a thing you do. I wake up, uh, I feed the cats, 
I scoop litter boxes and I make a pot of coffee. Um, I'm not real. My two favorite brands is probably Black Rifle Coffee. And there's a local brand here called Hoosier Warrior Coffee that I really enjoy. But if I'm just buying, you know, I'll get the $5 huge box bin whatever from Aldi, you know, just to just to have coffee on stock. Just because I remember during the, the shutdowns, you know, in 2020, people were running low on coffee. And given the discrepancy, disruption in the supply chains these days, who knows? So <laughs> I usually have about two months of coffee on hand at all times. <laughs> oh, man. God, I'm so glad I quit smoking. I used to smoke cigarettes and uh, chew tobacco. And as far as I can remember, that started in the trailer park I grew up in. Um, My buddy's mom would get these hand-rolled cigarettes, right? Kind of. Like it was, you get like these little empty cigarette paper tubes with the filter on the end. And there was all this unrolled pre-packaged tobacco that was ground up and everything and dried out and so with this machine you could fill your own cigarettes and you know we would fill her cigarettes for her we would uh, buy them off of her for 25 cents a piece right and you know that's the earliest I remember smoking I remember we so we were idiots right we thought that if you like you, you you take a drag on the cigarette and then you blow it into uh an empty two liter right so there's a bunch of smoke in there and then we would inhale it and we thought like oh that's how you get high no that's asphyxiation right <laughs> we were cutting off the oxygen supply to our brains <laughs> and, but we thought like, oh, it's like weed, but it's free. No, you're killing your brain cells, idiot. Oh, man. Oh, it's amazing I lived this long. <laughs> and as I got older, as I left for the military, uh, I started chewing tobacco, right? I did a little bit before I enlisted. I had friends that would dip um, uh, peach skull, right? And... You know, so I had tried it a little bit, but in basic training, we had access to um, our, you know, in basic training, uh, people figured out how to get their cell phones out of the wall lockers, right? And back in 2006, cell phones weren't that impressive and we weren't allowed to have them. And so they figured out how to jimmy the lock and get the cell phones and then they would 
uh, call a local taxi service because this is 2006 and Uber wasn't a thing yet. And they'd go to the PX on base and come back with logs of, you know, Copenhagen and then pack some more roll lights and occasionally get a little bit of booze. And, you know, it was a real black market vibe, right? Like 2006, it wasn't America's best and brightest. It was, um, you know, peasants like me and convicted felons, right? <laughs> like, you know, if you had a nonviolent, non-sex offense related felony, you too could join the United States Army back then. You didn't even have to have a high school diploma. You could have, they would send you to a GED camp and then, um, and then send you to basic train afterward, right? I met a couple of guys who did that. Um, I might be wrong on the felony thing. Maybe felony is harsh. Maybe it's convictions, right? I could be wrong there, but it's been a while. I never really looked into it that deep. These are just stories I heard. And so <laughs> all of these guys that were so good at like black market, you know, drug dealing before the army uh, found a new way to continue their business model in basic trading. And so... Uh, me being, uh, uh, you know, 19 with a steady paycheck for the first time in my life, uh, I had nothing but money and no real clear vision of how to spend it properly. So I would pay $20 for uh, a can of Skull and, and 50 bucks for a pack of cigarettes, right? And it was this sort of communal experience where after lights out, we would grab our hidden cans of chewing tobacco and go into the showers and just hang out and chew tobacco and spit it in the drains and stuff. And we had a name for our club. It was called the Shooters, right? Because our, our motto was, we're shooting straight, right? It wasn't, it was just, that was it. There, there was no subtext or hidden meaning or anything behind it. It was just, oh, we're shooting straight. And <laughs> like we, we that was our thing we'd see like oh you shoot straight yeah i'm shooting straight that means we're dipping right like we had tobacco in which is the stupidest thing and, and and yeah and so as i graduated basic training and uh, uh you know ait and everything what's my first duty station you know, I would chew tobacco while smoking a cigarette while drinking coffee or like drinking a Coke over ice, right? In the early days. And it would take me nearly eight years to quit smoking after my sort of first initial attempts in Iraq. I would go off and on the patches, off and on the gums, all the different ways of supplementing nicotine uh substituting nicotine i remember when i got off active duty and the va was offering nicotine patches and i said oh we'll give you a box a month for 12 months or something and i was like cool and then Apparently, I was supposed to quit smoking in 12 months, which I didn't. So I got 12 months of free nicotine patches, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, 
Um, and it was such a much like coffee, a cigarette it was such a communal thing. It was where you took a break from the day. It was where you gathered with your friends, swap stories, told jokes, that sort of thing. Um, cause when you're a smoker, oh, the smoke smells good when you're not a smoker anymore. Right. You can't stand the smell. You know, it's, it's very strange how much it changes. And, and there's this shame that comes with smoking, right? Where it's very much on the decline in the United States, of course. But, you know, when I was a smoker, when I was smoking heavy 10 years back, um, everybody knew that it was bad for you. You know, it wasn't a secret. Nobody was surprised. And it was kind of... It's a highly addictive substance that's been normalized, legalized, and taxed in our society, which uh, sucks because it is so hard to kick it. And I can remember feeling nicotine withdrawals, right? Because you feel the withdrawals through whatever medium you it, took it in. Where like if you were chewing the gum, you would feel the withdrawals in your mouth, right? If you, you know, had the pat, like I, I remember feeling nicotine withdrawals on my arms where the patches were. And, you know, it, it rewires your brain nicotine does I mean addiction does you know and it adds an extra chemical into your makeup right and it tells your body you need that chemical and then if you don't have that chemical it's like not having food that's all you can think about <laughs> you know addiction's a real son of a bitch um <laughs> And and my wife was probably a big reason why I finally kicked the habit because I would go to drill with the infantry unit I was in and I buy a pack of cigarettes or a can of chew or whatever and I would sort of embrace that culture right because the army was all about conformity right and this isn't you know, all my actions were my own, of course, but my actions were influenced by the culture around me a little bit, I guess. Right. If that makes sense. Um, because you want to fit in and, you know, you first start dipping, chewing, smoking, whatever, because you want to fit in. You keep doing it because you're addicted and everyone else around you was addicted. And if you change, then everyone else has to look at their own behavior, right? 
they have to reevaluate what they're doing to their bodies with tobacco. You know, I've even been that guy. You know, I had a guy who there was a buddy who was trying to quit uh, Copenhagen. And I'm like, hey, you want a little bit? You know, and I kind of peer pressured him into it like an asshole. And because, you know, I mean, at the time I thought it was funny, I guess, but I think, I think I just, you know, I didn't want to, I wasn't ready to quit yet. And, you know, seeing him quit like that or try to made me evaluate my own lack of fortitude in that area. And I found myself wanting and I didn't like that. So I offered an addict more of the stuff he was trying to kick, which was kind of a shitty thing to do. And if you're watching this, I'm sorry. I know how hard it is to kick it. And, and over time, I would lower my nicotine intake with the patches, right? You get like smaller and smaller patches and you get smaller and smaller nicotine per day. I tried the gum for a bit. I tried the mints, you know, um, and I found myself just chewing more of the gum. Right? I just transferred the addiction to a different medium into my body. But I remember I got back from my honeymoon and I threw out all my patches, right? And I had two weeks where my skin crawled. And, you know, it was rough, but I was married. And I had a good reason to quit, right? I was ready. That's, that's what the thing is. Like, the thing about addiction, and especially when it's a socially acceptable one and that it's legal, you know, no one's going to arrest you for smoking a cigarette. Um, you know, it's not heroin. But the thing about addiction is that you don't really quit until you're ready, right? And... And I don't begrudge anybody if they're not ready yet. Because I remember just how hard it was to get that monkey off my back. And I talked to younger guys. They're like, oh, I've never smoked a cigarette. I'm like, don't. <laughs> For whatever you do. It's not worth it. Don't go near it. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, it's rough. When I was a kid, like in high school and stuff, you know, we drank whatever we could get our hands on, right? Because we were teenagers and, you know, there was mostly just really, really cheap, gross stuff, right? Like, because the cheaper the alcohol is, you know, the more... Uh, sugar they put into it to compensate because <laughs> it's gross, <laughs> you know. 
And I have a little pet theory. I'm not 100% sure on this, but it's my little pet theory. Uh, that the more sugar, you know, hangovers kind of also, I know for me, when I have a hangover, it's because I had a drink with too much sugar in it. It messes up my sleep. So when we were kids, but you know, when we were kids, it didn't matter. And, you know, we drink this disgusting drink called Jägermeister. And that's a child's thing. Like, you know, we thought doing shots of Jäger was cool all the way up into our early 20s for some reason. And, and I, when I left for the army and I got to my first duty station, I remember drinking with this buddy of mine, right? I was 20. He was maybe 23, 24, something like that. But he liked to mix Ambien in with his booze, right? I did not. I just enjoyed the alcohol he bought me. <laughs> like it was like cheap bourbon rye or something. And he used to drink mix Ambien in with the booze. And I remember I'm sitting in this barracks room. I've been on active duty for like nine months, maybe. <laughs> I'm like a, a private first class, if that. And this cat is hallucinating. And then he's like, Lester, you're you're in little pieces and you're a fairy and you're floating around. And oh my God, you're raining everywhere. And I'll kill you. And I'm like, I'm gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I remember as I'm leaving, he's like, oh, don't leave. It's just starting. And I'm like, I think we're done. <laughs> so uh, that night I learned, oh, don't mix pills in with your booze. That's a bad idea. <laughs> I probably drank regularly the most during the pandemic. <clears throat> because... Because, um, you know, what else are we going to do? And I thought we were all going to die. <laughs> you know, you, when you're bored, coupled with end of the world anxiety, well, let's learn about scotch. You know, because <laughs> like I grew up kind of a low, mid, low shelf bourbon sort of guy, right? Like Jameson. Jameson's a good middle, lower, middle shelf uh, bourbon for me. And, uh, and when you start there, you didn't really know, right? Cause then you start move up to like maker's mark. Maker's mark's a good, solid middle of the shelf bourbon for me anyway. And with that, the difference is you can taste the difference in the sugar, you know, and your hangover is a little bit less. It was from, it is for me anyway. And so as the pandemic went on, like I remember uh, early days pandemic when we all thought we were going to die. And I remember just drinking beer to try to go to sleep and I'm fucking terrified. Right. And, you know, uh, and luckily the early days pandemic started uh, into spring. So when summer came around, I can go on walks. No one was doing anything in 2020. We were all sitting in our houses, but I could go on walks, right? And uh, so that way I didn't put on too much beer weight, you know? And I would learn about 
you know, just better tasting bourbons. And, you know, I think now I drink um, probably Woodford Reserve, right? Seems to be a good sort of middle, upper middle bourbon, right? You know, for me, Maker's Mark is like a good Tuesday afternoon bourbon. But Woodford Reserve is kind of a good Saturday evening bourbon, I think. And as things kept going, you know, like summer 21, right? Kind of spring 21, uh, we're all vaccinated. And I'm wanting to get out of the house and learn how to be a person again. Because I had spent 12 months just hunkered down. Like, I'm not going to go unless I absolutely have to. Because I don't want to get the virus. I don't want to spread the virus. I had people I cared about that were in a high-risk group. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to fuck off and stay away from you for a year. And, I, and so I would uh, start walking, right? And there was a pub that I liked uh, two and a half miles north of my house. And I'd go there and get, drink a couple pints, come back, right? I'm like, oh, you're walking off the beer weight. It's fine. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, there's another pub, another two miles north of that. So I'm like, oh, I would just hit that first pub and then go to that second pub on mile four and then hit that first pub back, get on mile six, and then you're home by mile eight. <laughs> and you had, I don't know, three, four pints, but you kind of like walk it all off, or at least you don't balloon too bad if you do that much cardio. <laughs> and, um, uh yeah and so that was kind of my thing it was just relearning how to interact with strangers again and and just teaching myself to not be afraid of it like i was like i was so terrified and this winter working from home uh i would drink four beers a day right but i knew if i drank them between 5 p.m and 7 p.m i wouldn't have a hangover right i'm like oh you tied this perfectly and then my clothes didn't quite fit the way uh, they used to you know uh, look in the mirror i'm like oh i'm getting all pudgy and like gross and just fat and i'm like you know we do some old nco math here four beers a day times seven days a week <laughs> let's see that's 28 beers a week Let's be generous and say three beers a day because I didn't always drink four beers a day, but you can probably average it up to three. So three beers a day times seven days a week, it's 21 beers times four weeks, that's 84 beers a month times four months. <laughs> that's 320 beers, something like that. I don't know. Uh, my bad might be wrong there. Uh, 320 beers times 160 calories per can. So <laughs> let's see. You add a, a zero to the th fuck it. It's a lot. I got fat off beer this winter, is what I'm saying. <laughs> that was the level. That was the ceiling. I took remedial math seven times in college. I would need a calculator for that one. <laughs> and so I skipped dry January because. You know, bourbon's delicious, but I'm having a drier February, I guess, right? Because, you know, I, I don't know, like I'm working out, 
but like I'm not doing any cardio because it's a frozen ice box outside. But I don't know. I just don't. I'm, I'm, I'll be 35 soon, and like I'm coming up on 40, right? I know that's five years from now, but I'll blink and it'll be five years from now, you know. And I don't want to be like fat beer belly guy when I'm 40, right? I'd like to be the oh, he kind of works out still guy, right? <laughs> Until it affects your sleep, you know, if you drink too, if you do it wrong, if you drink too many times, too many times a week, it messes with your sleep, man. And I'm hitting that age where I'd rather just sleep. You know, sleep is more valuable than anything else in the whole world. Anyway, that's all for me today. memory I have of action figures proper themselves is I'm four years old and we're in the house in Kentucky and my dad had made my sister a um, Barbie doll house right it was he made it from his circular saw and some scrap wood he had in the back in the garage and you know it was really well done and it was she would play with it all the time right but i had like gi joes and transformers and stuff and so when we played together because i was four and she was five um it would be like the gi joes would take over the barbie doll girl house it's so the G.I. Joes would hold the Barbie's prisoner and there'd be like a negotiation and a prisoner exchange. <laughs> and, and and my sister didn't want to play with me too much after that because the Barbies all had, didn't have any guns and G.I. Joe did, so I always won. <laughs> um, and then... As I got a little bit older, I was probably about six or seven, and we were in this house in Michigan. And in the Michigan house, um, I would stay in the basement, and I would play a game I called the Valley of the Spider-Men, right? Because I had multiple, multiple, multiple different Spider-Man action figures, the little six-inch ones you know um and along with that i had all these other different toys and stuff and and there was x-men toys and a lot of power rangers and ninja turtles action figures and a whole host of star trek ones and each of those uh star trek toys the action figures the spider-man the x-men all that they would pick a side and then I would have different groups, you know, just smash the action figures together. And I had to go up for dinner, right? And I leave all my action figures right in their place. 
and then I'd stop the story. And then when I got back, I'd pick the story up. I was serializing my own narrative, right? As a little kid, I didn't realize quite what I was doing. And, and I kept getting more and more cool action figures the older I got. And I left for the army and I got rid of a lot of things. Right, because for a while, you know, you're just living out of two duffel bags and a carry-on. And then I got back from the army. My parents been holding on to a bunch of stuff. And I got rid of it. I was like, ah, I don't need none of that anymore. Now I'm nearly 35. And I'm like, shit, I wish I held on to more of that stuff. And we actually started, or at least attempted to do her own action figures, right? Because uh, I publish G.I. Lowe, and uh, I thought, oh, he needs an action figure. And I, I have some friends that studied how to mold and plaster and cast your toys or whatever. And so we had a few prototypes made, but, you know, life happens and the pandemic happens. And, you know, you get busy with other stuff. <laughs> Never quite got it off the ground. But with those statues, they came from actually from the guy who narrated a lot of my audiobooks named Jason Spranger. He came up with the uh, the statues. And he's actually a remarkably talented guy. And with across multiple different mediums, which was spellbinding. It's not fair for one guy to be that handsome and that talented. And, and so we commissioned a bunch of stuff for him to make and and he did and he did a great job and that was kind of where that stopped which you know we tried which was kind of cool we explored the option which i like but we never quite figured out the infrastructure we needed but that's okay and so in 1993 Right. When Next Generation was at its uh, peak, its pinnacle, I remember walking down like aisles at the toy store or like, uh, yeah, there used to be a store called Toys R Us where you could only buy toys. And, or you go to Meyer, you go to Target or whatever, and you walk down and there's just nothing but rows of Next Generation action figures. Right. It was huge. My wife actually found. Uh, the bridge of the Enterprise <laughs> and uh, the engineering sets on an auction site for uh, Goodwill, right? <laughs> Which I'm like, she goes, you want this? And I was like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> and, and so after I got those, I, um, I talked to my dad and he has an eBay store. <laughs> and he's the one that sold me all of the action figures, right? So I've got you know, probably 12, 15, something like that. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And I'm like, oh, I can man the whole bridge and engineering. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. My dad had found all of those action figures and he was gonna sell them at his eBay store, but he let me have them for cost, which was really great, which is like two bucks a piece or something. It was nothing, right? He got them for a steal and let me have them for the same price, which was really cool of him. Because when I was a kid, we weren't getting the bridge set of the Enterprise. You know, we weren't getting the engineering deck. And now I'm kind of like, oh, I can kind of have cool stuff now and, and piece it together and stuff. And it, it you know, fills my heart with joy. I don't 
play Valley of the Spider-Men anymore, right? I don't quite sit down and like work them with, you know, with fight, have them fight each other. But it's kind of nice that I can, it's a cool thing I can look at and be like, oh, look, like it's, makes you a little bit of a kid again. When I was a little kid, my dad owned a comic book store in Kentucky, and in the back he had a bunk bed set up for me and my sister, and we would uh, hang out there all day while he was selling comics. This was probably 1992, 91, maybe, you know, probably 91. I was about four, I think. One of my earliest memories in that comic book store is I'm on the second bunk in the bunk bed in the back. And I uh, had just watched E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And I thought, oh, I'm going to ride my bike, my little three-wheel tricycle, off the top bunk just like E.T. did. And I landed uh, on my face. <laughs> And at the time, my dad was writing a speculative boom in the comic books industry where comic books from the 40s and 50s and 60s were just skyrocketing in value. And so people were thinking, oh, those are valuable. So the new ones will eventually maintain and increase to the same level of value. But those were valuable back in the day, the old issues, because people didn't maintain them. They didn't care about them. They just threw them away. So there weren't as many left over. And so they were printing millions and millions and millions of like X-Men number one and stuff like that. And at the time before the bubble burst, uh, yeah, I was making good money off of it, right? And then uh, the bubble burst. And then he had to close down the store. And then... He still dealt comic books and sports cards and collectibles and things. And he's done that my entire life. And I remember being a little boy. I'm probably five, six, seven, maybe. And I'm we're in Kentucky and then we're setting up in this flea market. I want to say it might be in Tennessee, but I don't remember. And I remember dad would spend the whole day just wheeling and dealing and selling his comics, right? The stuff, the leftover supplies from the store. And there was a guy selling lemonade next door to dad like the, 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 at the table next over. And so dad would like trade him comic books and stuff to get me some free lemonade, which was pretty cool. And I would play with that guy's kid all the time. And so sometimes I think he would just give us free lemonade because we were friends with this kid, you know, which was kind of nice. And as a kid, we would make our own comic book companies with air quotes, right? We would draw our own hand-drawn comics and have our own logos and stuff. And one such comic book company was called MD Comics. It stands for Mark and Derwin Comics because at the time my best friend was Mark and he was a good artist and I was a guy who could tell a story. So, you know, 
And, you know, I was just two 10-year-old boys being boys. And when I was a kid, I would read X-Men comic books in the middle of class and get in trouble for it all the time because I would have, like, a stack of comics. And this was, like, the mid-90s. And they would... We'd have these desks that were maybe 18 inches deep. They seem bigger when you're 10. And I would sit in class and I'm supposed to be learning about math or something and then like I would kind of open the desk and read whatever Wolverine's up to and get yelled at all the time and and X-Men was always my favorite and we used to go to this comic book store called Blue Chip Comics in Holland, Michigan where I grew up well one of the many towns I grew up anyway and we would go there and pick up whatever the latest X-Men comic was and one of the earliest um, memories I have of the X-Men proper was the X-Men animated cartoon series. And there's one that stuck with me that triggered my sort of creative output as a kid. And that was where the X-Men cartoon series did Days of Future Past basically right it's the future and everything's terrible and then they send someone back in time to maybe change it you know it's bishop's story the character bishop from the x-men and then in 2000 when the x-men movies came out it um it was it was this i couldn't believe they were making movies with comic book characters right again the 90s were a different era you know, there wasn't a comic book movie every three seconds like there is now. And and I remember sitting in the movie theater and we might have snuck in, me and my little brother, maybe. <laughs> and, and we're watching the first X-Men movie and then you see Wolverine and played by Hugh Jackman in full glory. And... And his claws come out and he's fighting Magneto and we're like, oh my God, it's happening. And then Spider-Man comes out and the Spider-Man 2 comes out and then Spider-Man 3 comes out, but we don't really talk about that. And I even loved the bad comic book movies when I was a kid. I liked Fantastic Four, right? The first two. I liked uh, Daredevil, right? With the Daredevil, this is going to sound strange, but the thing I like the most about the Daredevil movie is there's a piece of music in the DVD menu <laughs> that's sad and poignant, and it plays on a loop, and that hit me at just the right time when I was a teenager, that little sad piece of DVD menu music, <laughs> where if you go to the Daredevil director's cut DVD menu, and there's a little sad piece of music, and it really just... It made me cry when I was a kid. I was just, I was all full of angst and sadness, much like I am now. And when we were a little bit older, when we were teenagers in the trailer park, we would spend our Saturday mornings finding pop cans and soda cans and beer bottles and things along the side of the road by the highway. And then we would take our bounty, our scavenge, to the local gas station and return each pop can, pop bottle, beer bottle, whatever, for 10 cents a piece, right? It was Michigan's recycling program. And we would make maybe three or four bucks, which for us was big money back in the day. And we'd go and we'd get a three liter Fago soda bottle 
right? With like cherry or the, the off-brand Mountain Dew, whatever. They sell three liters for a dollar. And we'd get like this really cheap chocolate from Little Debbie. And we'd go across the street, sometimes running across the street, uh, across the highway to the local Barnes and Noble, right? We'd cross the highway and then cross the major intersection street. And then we'd go there and we'd bring the Mountain Dew, we'd bring the three liter Fago, we'd bring the cheap chocolate with and a bag of Cheetos. And then we'd just sit there and read comics all day. These big, expensive, collected graphic novels, not buying a darn thing. Right. And I'm sure we got Cheeto dust and chocolate and soda all over their products and uh, didn't pay for anything. <laughs> and as I grew up, as I left for the army, I remember reading comic books on active duty. Right. Like I didn't keep them in a collection because I was moving all the time. And I often lived out of two duffel bags and a carry on. And I remember being stationed at Fort Gordon in Georgia in 2007 and I had a collection there and that's when the comic books were doing Marvel's Civil War storyline which was kind of similar to the movie but remarkably different and I remember collecting all the comics then and there was this little comic book store on the base and I remember going there and then buying a comic and then going to this hot dog stand and then I would just sit there and eat a hot dog and drink soda and read comics right I was probably I don't know 19 or 20 and as I got older as divided by zero books developed as our network grew we met artists I was lucky enough, smart enough, blessed enough to share a comic I found called G.I. Low sometime in 2017 or so. And I remember he had only like a couple thousand followers at a time. He hadn't hit big yet like he is now. And he asked me if I could turn his a web cartoon series into a print comic book, right? And at the time, I was creating collections of The Thin Line of Life because The Thin Line of Life was originally five separate books and then I turned it into two bigger volumes. And I said, well, I'm busy, but you can take your cartoon character and write it into my zombie apocalypse. And with that, kind of started a, a partnership that has lasted five years now almost and we've had three best-selling comic books together and I got to fulfill a promise to that kid way back in the 90s who was hand-drawing MD comics with his best friend Mark. Mark